I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number four in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, February the 28th. First, I talk to Eugene Dubosarski, head of the Analytics Academy and the chief data scientist at AlphaZeta, looking at how companies should manage their data. And then I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering, looking at Australia's latest unemployment and wages figures. But now, let's talk to Eugene Dubosarski. Well, Eugene, how important is data for business now? That is a question where, in the 10 minutes we have, it's a, it's a real challenge to generalise. Um, I would say crucial to some businesses, obviously so, and very important to others, and they probably don't realise it. And it's also how broadly do we define data? I mean, if we're talking about data the way I think about it, we're talking about using all available information to make the best business decisions you make. In that respect, data is and has always been crucial. Now, you're probably asking me about electronic data. And I'll say, well, increasingly, just about all the data we're using to make decisions is electronic. And you're probably going to say to me, yes, but I'm fine making decisions using my gut feel and my instincts and my experience. And I'll say, your gut feel and your experience are great, but they'd be even better if you added the magical technologies of logic and reason and the more recent computational technologies and the enhancement of, of readily available data to make those decisions even better. And you may say to me, well, maybe I don't really need to make good decisions that much. And that, I think, is the big tragedy today because for a lot of businesses, particularly a lot of businesses investing most heavily in data analytics, they're not necessarily the businesses where good decisions are as crucial or bad decisions as calamitous. But the other question to ask is, how important is data not today, but tomorrow? And I would say in increasingly and massively. I'd say where tomorrow, today, it, you know, you're safe saying it's important, and I don't have the time to explain what important means, let alone why it's important. I think I'm even safer to say in 10 years' time, it's going to be crucial. And the thing I really want to talk about is something called data literacy. Because um, I don't think I need to convince anyone that just about anyone adding any economic value as a professional today is massively computer literate. 
they would be considered an, a total computer nerd 30 years ago. And this is everyone from the age of eight onwards and everyone from uh, an entry-level graduate to a CEO in a large organization. Everyone is massively computer literate now, just to be able to contribute to the economy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Something that hasn't really happened yet but is in the way of coming is the advent of data literacy where in order to be economically useful, economically productive, as a professional, people are going to need to know how to turn data into decisions, how to infer insights from data, how to be curious with data, how to be self-served with data in ways that they currently aren't now. And I think a lot of the potential, a lot of the productivity, a lot of the value of the advanced tools and the experts that we have in the field is being held back by the lack of data literacy on the part of most professionals, particularly most leaders today. So how does a leader develop data literacy? Uh, I'd like to tell you that it's the only way to do it is to do my two-day data literacy course, which is honestly not a good, not, 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 a, not, a, bad, not a bad way to start. Uh, it's, sure. Uh, it's, uh, it's, a great, it's a great start, but uh, to be perfectly honest, um, the way to acquire data literacy is to engage with data analytics for the purpose of making decisions with data. This is the other important point I want to make. The perp- I, I won't say the only purpose of data is to make good decisions, because we also use data in a more sort of routine, dare I say, boring way. You know, Every time you make a bank transaction, every time you buy something online, every time you, you hire an Uber, data does its work behind the scenes just, just to facilitate that transaction. That's kind of boring. That's kind of automated. The more exciting use of data is the field I'm in, which is data analytics. And that's the use of data to make better decisions. So I'm not saying data only exists to make good decisions, but data analytics, which is the really hot use of data, I think that everybody is excited by, that only exists to make good decisions. And a manager, or in fact anybody, seeking to become more data literate, the only way to do so is to start looking at data, not pumping just pump, pumping data blindly through machines, not, not following blind processes, but actually looking at the data itself, realizing if they don't have the skills to actually look at data in an interactive and curious way, and looking for opportunities and threats, and turning those into business actions. The reality, though, is that a lot of managers don't have those skills. 
So a lot of companies would be looking towards hiring data scientists, which would be the hot new job, wouldn't it? Well, I think it was the hot new job 10 years ago. Right now it's, it's uh, I think, a massively saturated job because it seems to me that uh, an enormous amount of people, for better or worse, call themselves data scientists. And there are an enormous number of degree programs out there that, for better or worse, call themselves data science degrees. Now, without passing judgment one way or the other on, on these people or these courses, uh, I, will, I will still uh, ask the question, is hiring a bunch of, let's say, very, very competent people in a, in a particular field the right first step? when you don't even know how to tell if they're good or not, when you don't know how to assess their work, when you don't know what to do with their work, when you don't, basically when you don't know how to direct them. I found that there's a lot of talk about needing a way of assessing data scientists so people can be certified as good data scientists. And I'm, I'm keep thinking, the sort of people who wouldn't be able to tell a good data scientist from a bad one without a certificate, are they the sort of people who'd know what to do with a good data scientist if they had one? So um, I don't know that hiring data scientists is the first step. I think engaging with data to the best of one's ability is the key first step. Learning is the next step. And getting expertise in on an ad hoc basis because people don't know what questions to ask initially. People don't know what, what kind of data resources they have or how they may help initially. Uh, people who want to get into data analytics in a serious way need to spend a lot of time honestly exploring, very honestly saying, look, I don't even know where to start, very honestly accepting the fact that they're going to hit a lot of dead ends, and, um, and willing, willing to face all of that in a truly, dare I say, agile way. And uh, I'm using agile with a small a, the English meaning of the word, not the new brand, but possibly aligned with the intentions of that brand. Because I, what I mean is, people need to be able to um, engage directly with this task of making better decisions and growing and learning and growing towards it. The way, the way I see that not being done is people saying, well, here's a bunch of budget, Here's a bunch of words that tell, tell everyone how enthusiastic I am if I'm, you know, this very senior person in an organization. So I'm supportive and I'm enthusiastic, but I'm not actually involved. You know, this data stuff doesn't concern me, which makes me scratch my head. Isn't the CEO someone who's supposed to make good decisions for the benefit of the organization? And isn't data analytics something that will hopefully help that CEO make better decisions than all the other CEOs? Don't they need to make good decisions? So the key for CEOs and managers is to, is to engage with data and say, this is how much I don't know and this is how much I have to learn. That's right. But, but engage also means start, start looking at data to the best of your ability yourself. Start Do what Winston Churchill did. So my favourite data-enabled manager was Winston Churchill in World War II. One of the first things he did was to in his underground bunker office, put an office right next to his where his statistical unit was. And their job was to provide him with graphs of fighter plane production, ship production, ships sunk, troops lost, all the things he needed to run the war because the stakes were high, he needed to make good decisions, and he knew that good decision support was the very first thing he required. 
Did he know exactly which questions to ask initially? Probably not, but he knew he would have questions and he knew that these were the people to answer it. And I think that that, that, that bit of analytics done with paper and pencil and stuck on walls was way more effective than a lot of the stuff being done with cloud technology these days. That's quite extraordinary. So it has to start with basic data, just go over that have, to the best of your ability. Have questions, examine the data, identify what you can't answer, and then learn. And yes, doing courses, getting smart people who can help you answer those questions, getting, getting advisors who can help you do some of that interpretation, not all of it, and knowing at what point no one can help you and you have to make the call yourself. Knowing at what point, as a decision maker, you have to engage. Not outsourcing the whole decision pipeline to someone else just because it's, inverted commas, technical, which incidentally is a term of abuse in Australia. Technical means low status. Technical is a term that management often uses to dismiss very important complex thinking. So don't do that. Well, it's a huge lesson for managers, and you should thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leo. And now let's talk to Indeed economist Callum Pickering. Well, Callum Pickering, this week has been an unusual week with the wages and the labour market figures. Uh, tell us about the wages figures. I mean, 2.2%. Yeah, it was another really weak wage outcome. It wasn't unexpected, but it was still disappointing all the same. 2.2% is is where we've been for a number of quarters now. Um, and there's really no evidence that wage growth is improving. I know policymakers have been forecasting a swift turnaround in wage growth over the next couple of years. That's coming from you know the RBA and, and Federal Treasury. But so far, it hasn't eventuated. And there's really no sign that we're going to see that pick up in wage growth anytime soon. Uh, certain industries have uh, done very poorly uh, sort of um, in uh, sort of other industries like retail, manufacturing, construction, uh, education. They've all dropped below 2%. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's a couple of industries that are doing very well and a handful of industries that are doing very poorly. What we're finding at the moment is that wage growth is being highly concentrated in, in a couple of key sectors. One is healthcare, where wage growth is over 3%. The other one is professional services, where wage growth is close to 3%. Um, and that's helping to push the national average up. But at the other end of the spectrum, we do have these sectors such as retail and manufacturing construction, three really important sectors where wage growth is struggling to push through 2% which effectively means that um, people working in those sectors are seeing their, their wages go backwards once accounting for inflation. And uh, I, I suppose uh, healthcare and social services, that would be a factor of an ageing population and population growth, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, an ageing population and, and strong population growth more generally has created huge demand for healthcare services. Uh, one of the byproducts of that is rapid growth in healthcare employment, and that's flowing through to, to higher wages. Um, quite simply, what we're seeing is a lot of skill shortages across the healthcare sector. And when skill shortages emerge, you tend to see higher wage growth develop. Um, and that's precisely what we're seeing with healthcare. And that's a trend that we would and expect to continue for the foreseeable future. Right. Okay. Okay. But uh, I mean, overall, it means uh, people won't be spending much and uh, that will affect the economy, won't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, when wage growth is, is low, that flows through to, to retail spending and household spending more broadly. 
Um, and that's what we've seen in recent years. Household spending growth has been quite weak. Um, and since it accounts for more than half of the Australian economy, when household spending is weak, um, the economy tends to be weak. And so if we expect wage growth to remain at roughly its current level over the next two or three years, then we should expect the, that conditions will remain tough across the retail sector over that time frame. And uh, you don't see it picking up over the next two or three years? We would need to see some big changes in the labour market for that to occur. We'd need really strong employment growth, uh, much stronger than we've seen in recent years, um, for higher wage growth to eventuate. I think that the most likely scenario is that wage growth just continues on at roughly its, its current pace over the next couple of years. Well, indeed, because uh, the latest labour force figures this week came out at uh, was went up from five point one to five point three percent, and that wasn't even affected by the coronavirus. Yeah, that's right. Um, a bit of a calm before the storm, really, because we know that um, coronavirus is going to have a pretty strong impact upon the Australian economy. We're just not entirely sure how at the moment. Uh, but yeah, you're right. The, the unemployment rate has ticked up to 5.3%, um, which is, is a pretty weak result given where we are in the, in the business cycle. Um, we know that wage growth is highly tied to measures of unemployment. So when the unemployment rate ticks up, as it has, um, we tend to find that wage growth softens. Um, so again, it you know, these, these labour market data suggest that um, labour market conditions across the country are, are pretty weak at the moment. And uh, you would need uh, uh, unemployment at about 4.5% rather than uh, 5.3% to uh, have any impact on wages. Yeah, some, some research I've done suggests that you need to get the unemployment rate down to about 4.5% and you need the underutilisation rate to get down to around 12%. And currently that's at 13.7%. Um, and you need those um, measures to get down to that rate to facilitate wage growth of around 3%, which is where we probably need to be to have what I would consider a, a strong and vibrant economy. Right, okay. I mean, what, one of the most striking things about this is, uh, I mean, because it was before the coronavirus, you would expect uh, unemployment figures could actually spike during the year. Well, I think that's... That's quite likely. I think Australia is probably heading towards a, a negative quarter in the first quarter, given the, the big impact that we're going to see with um, tourism and Australia's major exports. Um, I mean, China drives a lot of Australia's exports. And so with China on the ropes, it's naturally going to have a big um, follow-on effect to the Australian economy. Um, it is highly likely that the unemployment rate will drift upwards over the next three months or so. The big uncertain, uncertainty that we face, though, is we don't know how long this coronavirus threat is going to last. Um, hopefully, it's pretty short-lived, and then the economy will bounce back quite quickly. But if it's something that persists through to mid-year, then it's naturally going to have a huge impact upon Australian employment and economic growth more broadly. Indeed. And I mean, one of the most striking things about these figures was, I mean, we had, uh, for example, uh, uh, 13,500 extra people finding employment in January. But uh, the amazing part was that 31,000, there was a 31,000 people increase in unemployment. That was enormous. Yeah, it was a big increase. Now, from month to month, you do tend to have a bit of volatility with some of these measures. Um, so it is worth 
bearing that in mind. But, I mean, given what we are seeing with the economy and, and some of the uncertainties that we do face surrounding the bushfires and the coronavirus and things like that, I think it is fair to say that the increase in the unemployment rate was quite legitimate. It's not a quirk of the data, which sometimes happens, um, but it is a, a legitimate outcome and, and does um, say a lot about where the economy currently sits. And uh, hours worked uh, rose by just 1.3%, wasn't it, compared with about 2% increase in employment? Yeah, so comparing hours worked against employment growth is a useful way of assessing whether the jobs that are being created are, are high-quality jobs or, or not. Um, what we're seeing at the moment is that hours worked is, is not growing as quickly as employment, which suggests that the average worker is working fewer hours. It suggests that the economy is creating a lot of sort of part-time and casual roles, whereas job seekers are really looking for those full-time opportunities. Um, also, one thing we do tend to see is that when the economy begins to struggle, the first thing that gets hit is hours worked rather than employment. And so the fact that hours worked is growing at such a slow pace right now does suggest that the labour market more broadly has um, softened. And, of course, you're going to have uh, many people then holding uh, multiple jobs because they're not earning enough. Well, that's exactly right. Um, one of the, the big challenges that's emerged in the Australian economy over the past decade has been this issue of underemployment, that is, people who have jobs but would prefer more hours. And one of the consequences of that is that um, more people are taking on multiple jobs to make ends meet. And when the labour market does soften and more people find themselves in uh, unemployed, you know, they, they do get a little bit more desperate and they are willing to take on multiple casual or part-time roles. Um, to keep their head above water. Indeed. And uh, so how do you see this affecting the RBA? Well, certainly the market expects that the um, the RBA is going to cut rates again this year. I think that's still on the cards. The RBA has flagged that, you know, that they wouldn't cut unless they saw a material impact, uh, material pickup in the unemployment rate. Um, they're beginning to see that. And given the risks associated with the, the bushfires and, and the coronavirus, I think we are likely to see the unemployment rate um, drift higher to 5.5% maybe, maybe even a, a little bit um, beyond that, which gives the RBA, you know, all the evidence it needs to, to cut rates again. Um, what we do know, though, is that the RBA is, is fairly reluctant to cut again, um, but if the data suggests that they have to, they will follow through. And uh, do you expect just one cut or more? I expect one cut by mid-year and I think a second cut in the second half of this year. Which uh, would take it down to the magic 0.25%. Yep, incredibly low. I mean, we can't go much lower beyond that. So if the economy doesn't begin to, to pick up um, over the next year or so, even with those cuts, I think it becomes more likely that we'll begin to consider quantitative easing and other unconventional um, policy options that we've seen utilised in other countries um, to address poor economies. Well, we'll watch that space with great interest. And Callum Pickering, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, with fears of a global pandemic as the virus affects 80,000 people and kills more than 2,600 across 30 countries, the markets have plunged. The worry is the bond market has flashed its most popular recession indicator, with the yield for the 10-year Treasury note and 30-year Treasury bond plunging to its lowest level on record. 
Investors are fleeing to what they assume is a safety US government bonds and an inverted yield curve has preceded all US recessions since 1950. It will affect us and potentially Donald Trump next November. Stock markets have slumped around the world, falling for several days to their lowest level in four years, as a deadly coronavirus continued to spread across Europe and Asia, with airlines and tourism companies taking a heavy hit. Growing fears for coronavirus pandemic pushed shares sharply lower, as investors rushed to buy safe haven investments such as gold, sending gold prices surging to a seven-year high of $1,683 an ounce. The FTSE 100 index in London lost 240 points to 7,163.70, a 3.2% drop. Among the worst hit stocks were the budget airline EasyJet, down 12.6%, tour operator TUI, down 7.9%, and British Airways owner IAG, down 7.5%. Shares in Carnival, the cruise ship operator, which has faced an outbreak of the virus on its Diamond Princess cruise ship, shed 6.4%. Italy is at the centre of the coronavirus crisis in Europe, reporting its fourth death on Monday, as the number of cases in the country rose to 152, the highest number outside Asia. The Eurozone's third largest economy is already contracting, and the rapid spread of the virus has parked fears of a recession. Italian authorities have responded by locking down 12 cities in the north of the country, and the Venice Carnival has also been cut short by two days. The Italian stock market tumbled 1,095 points to 23,676.17, a 4.3% fall, putting on track for its worst day since, since 2016. Elsewhere in Europe, Germany's DAX fell 3.5%, while France's CAC lost 3.7%. Milan's stock market plunged over 4.5% after a spike in cases of the virus left parts of Italy's industrial north in virtual lockdown. Frankfurt and Paris both fell more than 3.5%, and London's FTSE dropped 3.3%, wiping at least US $400 billion off the region's market value in a few hours. In Asia, Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index fell 1.8%, while South Korea's Kospi slumped 3.9%. The ASX 200 lost 2.25% to 6,978 points, its biggest one-day percentage fall since August, with consumer and energy stocks leading the losses. And Scott Morrison is clearing the way for a government retreat on the budget surplus, with Treasurer Josh Frydenberg declaring the economic hit from the coronavirus outbreak would be worse than the bushfires, after uncertainty over the epidemic wiped $82 billion off the stock market in days. The Prime Minister warned that the damage from the health crisis was not limited to the education sector and tourism sector. It's affecting the building industry, Mr Morrison said. It's affecting the manufacturing industry. It's affecting our export industry. While planes aren't coming down, planes aren't going out, and the bellies of those planes aren't taking Australian produce into those markets. As the Treasurer revealed that G20 finance ministers and central banks were so concerned about the rippling effects of the epidemic that they feared the shutters would come down on the global economy, the government gave its strongest signal yet that its predicted $5 billion surplus may not be possible. Mr Morrison refused to give a guarantee, saying, When we framed the budget a year ago, who thought there was going to be a coronavirus epidemic? And the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index found consumer confidence declined 0.7% last week, driven lower by weakness in financial conditions. Current financials fell 4% compared to the prior week, while future finances declined 5.2%, its second straight weekly loss. And total construction done fell 3% in December quarter, says the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Markets have been looking for a 1% drop. 
and the Prudential Regulator will conduct vulnerability assessments of the major banks next year to ensure the financial impacts of climate change and the transition to a low-carbon economy are being properly considered by management and disclosed to investors. The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority also said it would develop a new Climate Change Financial Risk Prudential Practice Guide to clarify expectations about climate change-related financial risk disclosures. The new assessment, which will be coordinated through the Council of Financial Regulators, will begin with banks and extend to the superannuation and insurance sectors. APRA wants to drive a consistent approach to scenario analysis and disclosure and will use the assessments to analyse the macroeconomic impacts of climate change alongside the Reserve Bank. And celebrity chef George Calambaris's food empire collapsed, owing its secured creditors $22.3 million, having racked up a merry-go-round of intercompany loans totalling $17.8 million, new documents reveal. Calambaris's maid establishment, which comprised... 12 restaurants and food outlets went bust on February the 11th, with just $389 left in the bank, according to reports filed to the failed hospitality group's administrator, Corda Mentha. The statement of Maid's activities and property reveals that the Matt Coman-led Commonwealth Bank is owed $8.5 million, comprising $7.1 million via a finance facility and $1.46 million via bank, bank guarantees. CBA is expected to get only $1 million of its money back. Calambaris's partner in the failed enterprise, Swiss Vitamins millionaire Radek Sully, claims to be owed $13.7 million from the corporate collapse. An ardent leisure has been referred to the Queensland Office of Industrial Relations for potential prosecution over the Thunder River Rapid disaster at Dreamworld that killed four people. In a stinging rebuke to the listed company, Coroner James McDougall said Ardent Leisure was responsible for systemic safety failures at its popular Gold Coast theme park. With Ardent Leisure Chairman Gary Weiss sitting in the front row of Court 17 in Brisbane Magistrates Court on Monday, Coroner McDougall outlined a litany of safety failures on the On Thunder River Rapid Ride over 30 years. He said there'd been no proper safety assessment of the ride by a qualified engineer since it opened in 1987, and there had been ad hoc modifications. He said managers at Dreamworld had ignored previous incidents where there had been problems in the ride and they had not done anything to fix underlying problems. And the security and reliability of Australia's power grid is now at a critical status, according to a report from the Energy Security Board, even as power prices start falling. Electricity prices are forecast to fall more than 7% within a couple of years. The government's Energy Security Board warns that the grid is struggling to cope with both climate change and increased renewable energy generation in its annual health check of the grid. The board said extreme weather over the summer and the strain on ageing coal-fired power station have stretched the capacity of the system. ESB Chair Dr Kerry Schott told the ABC's AM program that the surge in wind and solar generation has been an added complication in the grid's ability to handle new energy sources. Dr Schott said climate change was a factor in the extreme weather events and has warned of more to come. And casual clothing chain Jeans West, which collapsed last month, has been sold back to its former owners after closing a quarter of its stores, but there will be no return to unsecured creditors owed about $10 million. Harbour Guidance Proprietary Limited, a subsidiary of a Hong Kong company owned by clothing and textile mogul Chun Fang Yung and his family, have reached agreement with administrators to buy back Jeans West after directors, including Mr Yung, placed it into administration last month. And it's a profit reporting season. Blue Scope Steel, 
reported a 70% fall in its first half statutory net profit to $185.8 million. Health fund NIB's half-year net profit after tax has fallen 23% to $57.3 million as rising hospital claims offset higher revenue from its growing membership base. Air New Zealand is the latest company to report a hit from COVID-19 outbreak, with the company flagging a fall in earnings of between New Zealand $35 million and New Zealand $75 million. That's $33.5 million to $71.8 million Aussie. Audio technology business Ordinate's interim net profit fell 60% to $341,000. Household goods manufacturer Pentol reported a 2.6% increase in December half net profit to $1.47 million. Reliance Worldwide reported that its full year net profit is expected to be $140 million to $150 million, down from the previous guidance of between $150 million and $165 million. HTE reported a statutory loss of $14.2 million for the 2019 full year, compared with a $225.5 million profit in the previous year. Viva Energy's underlying profit, the figure most closely watched by the market, fell to $135.8 million in the year to December 31, down from $231.5 million in 2018. Bottom line net profit, including one-time items and changes in the value of stockpiles, plunged 78% to $113.3 million. Childcare provider G8 Education reported a 13% fall in full-year profit of $62.5 million for the year to December 31, factoring a hit from new leasing standards. Regional broadcaster Prime Media reported a 56.2% slump in net profit to $4.5 million in the first half of 2019-20, which also included a $1.5 million cost hit from its failed merger with affiliate partner Seven West Media. Softer commodity prices drove a decline in oil searches for year profits to US $312.4 million, that's $473.3 million Aussie, in the year end of December 31, down from $341.2 million US in 2018. Sales edged up 3% to US $1.58 billion. ASX-listed fintech and super fund Hub24 announced statutory net profit after tax of $6 million for the half year to December 31, up 90% on December 2018. Seek says its 2019-20 result could be lower than current guidance of up to $120 million in revenue, up to $45 million in earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation, and reported net profit of about $25 million. Treasury Wine Estate says it now had sufficient information about sales in China to say that it no longer believed it would be able to achieve its previous profit guidance of earnings growth of between 5% and 10% for 2019-20. Insurance builder Johns Ling, which repairs insured property damage for companies such as IAG, Suncor and QBE, reported interim earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation of $20 million, up 77% from the year earlier period. Blackmore's net profit dived 37% to $18.2 million for the six months of December 31. QUB Holdings reported a 16% drop in interim profits to $51.7 million. Illumina Limited reported a 53% slump in full-year profits to US $326.6 million. That's $494.5 million. Livestock exporter Wellard reported a net loss after tax of $2.1 million, down from a profit of $2.9 million at the same time last year, as revenues fell 73.9% to $49.1 million. Jewel and Michael Hill's first half net profit rose 19.6% to $21.4 million, after revenue rose 4.4% to $329.5 million. 
Steadfast Group reported net loss for the year of $71.9 million. Adelaide Brighton's full-year profits slumped 74.5% to $47.3 million. Funerals business Invocare Maiden Earth reported half-year net profit up 55% to $63.8 million. Net profit after tax for Helios rose from $20.4 million to $66.3 million. Regis Healthcare's net profit fell from $24.4 million in the prior corresponding period to $12.1 million. Equity trustees reported a 12.2.3% increase in half-year net profit of $11.5 million. Cash Converters has reported a $19.4 million loss in the first half of the year following a $42.5 million settlement and associated legal costs of a class action in Queensland. Redbubble's operational earnings, EBITDA, increased to $10.1 million, up from $6.9 million in the first half. Maida Group delivered an adjusted net profit after tax of $8.7 million compared to a prospectus forecast of $9 million. AMA Group has reported an $11.6 million loss following a disappointing first half result. Stock feed producer Ridley Corps' half-year profit fell to $396,000 after it recorded a number of restructuring charges, notably the $7.2 million cost of closing its Murray Bride Me feed mill. Virgin Australia has warned of a hit to earnings of between $50 million and $75 million after increasing cancellations and reduction in forward bookings to leisure destinations and Tiger Air routes due to the coronavirus outbreak. Net profit for medical devices business Nanosonics dived 20% to $5.7 million. National Storage, REIT, has reported a first half profit of $150.7 million, up from $28 million in the prior half year, after a $123.6 million net increase in the value of its asset. Woolworths profit dipped by 7.7% to $887 million in the first half of the year, despite revenue rising 6% to $332.4 billion. Retail property landlord Home Consortium reported funds from operations of $0.3 million in the first half, but says full-year FFO will be 10% above forecast of $15.2 million. Freight company K&S Corporation reported a 70% drop in interim profit to $2.9 million. Nine Entertainment's total statutory net profit for the year was down 49% to $87.3 million. Bubs Australia reported a first-half statutory loss of $7.6 million from $8.6 million. Gross profit for PointsBet rose to $12.28 million, up from $6.89 million. Ferry operator Sealing's net profit after tax climbed 3.8% to $13.6 million on sales, for up 4.6% to $132.9 million. AV Jennings' net profit after tax rose to $8.9 million from $1.4 million. Polynovo has reported $2.4 million loss for the first half year, extending its losses by 26% from last year, despite revenue for the period rising 80% to $80.2 million. Sports analytics business Catapult has narrowed its half-year net loss to $4.8 million versus $9.3 million in the prior corresponding period. Non-bank residential mortgage lender Resimac has lifted its first half net interest income by 53% to $84.3 million, with net profit after tax up 44% to $27.2 million. Perth-based developer Pete reported a 78% fall in statutory profit to $5.1 million. Australian Ethical reported net fund inflows of $295.8 million in the half year into December 31, close to double the result of the previous first half. Think Childcare's net profit for the year was down 59.5% to $2 million. However, with AASB changes wiping $13.1 million from the company's earnings. Ag tech company Biogene Technology reported a loss after tax of $1.1 million from $1.3 million.
And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to lawyer Rob Bryden, who will provide commentary on what franchisees should do if they find themselves in a dispute against a franchisor. And then I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory about the impact of the coronavirus on the global economy. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, talking BizBLZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a terrific week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 